Great. Uh, thanks very much, Constantine. Um, so uh, we, what we thought we'd do is, is uh, point up um, some of the longer debates, certainly beginning with me, uh, beginning with uh, the longer debates within Derek's own work uh, in terms of the background to his thinking and how his own intellectual biography has developed. And I do that partly not only because we have been having a, a discussion uh, in, at various points about these issues, but also because I, I uh, was uh, hugely influenced by some of the um, things that he's done uh, uh, over the years. Um, and certainly in terms of the beginnings of uh, the kind of thinking that eventually led to something like the literature police, the, my own starting point was a, a really I think a fascinating moment uh, in uh, the, uh, Derek's uh, book called Peculiar Language, which first appeared in 1988. Um, and there's a moment in the introduction where he does this, uh, uh, in, makes this interesting move in the sense that he looks, so you, you as a reader are just beginning this book. And the person who wrote the book uh, starts by giving you a retrospective, in a sense, of the book that you're about to read and the ways, the kinds of questions he's been asking and the ways he's been pursuing them, and then says those questions are not enough. And so points to another book that needs to be written and needs to be addressed and another set of questions. So it's a book that begins almost by undoing itself, but that's part of the, 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 the trajectory and the journey that it has been on. And, and this is the point here in particular. Uh, so just very, very briefly, in a sense, what, what, what of the the things that the book picks up on is a whole development within a debate, primarily, I think uh, Derek will correct me if I'm wrong, primarily coming for Derek through the intersection of linguistics and literary studies in the 1970s. Uh, so people like, like Stanley Fish, uh, issues that were going on with Paul the Man and the, um, the theor theorization of the literary in that sense, to some extent picking up on Derrida and so on. But it was um, primarily on the issue of the distinctiveness of literary language. Where, where, where do we find this? Why, why do we, what, what are we pursuing? Is there something different going on in a literary work and its use of language to anywhere else in a newspaper report, a, 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 um, um, a recipe or whatever? So th those kinds of questions. And the, the, the point at which uh, theoretical debate in the um, uh, English-speaking world, certainly, uh, or as usual, things start in France a little earlier. The, the, um, in the post-war France, these issues started to develop. There was everybody, in a sense, converged on a consensus that there was certainly no definitive final set of linguistic or formal properties that you could point to in order to rest the claim. This is the distinctiveness of the literary. And so what Derek did in a, in a, in a more kind of historicist vein was look at various theorizations from the Renaissance right the way through to the 20th century and literary practice in that period where people have attempted, you know, say for instance in Wordsworth's preface to the lyrical ballads, various other documents and texts by poets and writers and theorists where they've tried to establish some formal or linguistic set of properties and, it's, and Derek, in a sense, chapter by chapter demonstrates the, the kind of conceptual failure of that attempt. So that's the book that we get. Then, as I say, in the introduction, this is where we start. So he's, Derek first says here, in pursuing the question, what constitutes or has been taken to constitute the distinctive, if you like, literary use of language, that question. The answers that offer themselves most immediately are, it is true, formal ones, and there is much to be learned by following them through. 
Okay, so they are formal or linguistic answers to that question that can be. And in a sense, that's the book that we then go on to read. But then Derek opens up a whole series of other questions and says, well, that in the end didn't work. That, that project doesn't work. It leads, it leads into the sand. And a whole series of other problems and questions arise. And this is how he then formulates it. What does, why, why does the culture privilege certain kinds of language and certain modes of reading? Such a question can receive an answer only when we reach the realm of political and economic relations, the structures of power, dominance and resistance, which determine the patterns and privileges of cultural formations. Or more accurately, all our questions change radically when we reach this point. And we see that the answers we were hoping to find, again in that kind of formal linguistic orientation, do not exist. The answers to the new questions, questions about the formation of taste, etc., etc., have to be sought by means of a very different kind of study. Okay, so that's where we start. You're going to maybe think this book's going to try to give you certain answers in a certain framework. In fact, what this book's going to do is expose the impossibility of that project and it points at that moment to the need to look at structures of power, institutions, the kind of thing that Constantine was talking about. And given what Constantine usefully said, um, you can see why my own work was, was very informed by that. But the, the question I thought I would maybe start with, uh, with uh, Derek, is that actually Derek pointed here to books that many of us have tried to write, but never directly wrote himself. Instead, it seemed to me, looking at a book like The Singularity of Literature, thinking about other things that you've done, that you felt that even that formulation uh, left you with a major set of unresolved problems that you felt you still couldn't address in the kind of socio-institutional way that you opened up there. You felt something else had to be done. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, well, just to be autobiographical about what, what you've read there. Of course, the introduction was written last for that book, as they tend to be. And, in, and, and well, in writing the chapters, starting with worrying about the concept of decorum in the Renaissance, which the more I worked on, the more I realized was a way of saying there is an element in good literature, good writing, which is not subject to rules. It's always this little little thing that we can't tell you exactly what it is, but you'll know it when you see it. And I found that pattern repeating itself in different ways down, down centuries. Um, every time a, a, a writer, a poet, a theorist, a critic tried to make a distinction between literature, successful, important literature, and other kinds of, other kinds of text, uh, they always reached a point where they said, well, this, this we can't put down in black and white. This is taste or uh, some other unspecifiable, non-rule-governed property. And then between finishing the chapters and writing the introduction, I discovered uh, Pierre Bourdieu. This is in the mid-1980s. I discovered Bourdieu's book, Distinction, which I hadn't been aware of. Uh, and that did throw a whole new light on these issues, uh, 
that's, that's the moment really when I realized that there were different kinds of answers or when I realized that if what constitutes the literary is never subject to formal rule, it must be subject to something else. And it seemed to me that what it's subject to are the determining forces of political, economic, social, cultural context. It's, 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 it's something else. It's not within the literary field. It's something outside the literary field that determines in a, in a, in a given place and time what shall count as literature and what shall not. So, hence, I felt obliged, having made this discovery, to, to add this, this in the introduction. Um, what happened next, I suppose, is partly a matter of, as it were, academic taste. I, I, I've never thought of myself, I've never been drawn to the kind of institutional analysis that Peter does so wonderfully. So having thrown this out, I, in a way, reposed the question, posed it in a different way. What if this historically repeated failure to be able to specify in, in determinate terms the distinction between the literary and the non-literary, what if that was actually the key to, to what literary discourse and literary practice is? Rather than simply a failure, a repeated failure, which then left literature open to these, these external forces, what if we could think of that as the constitutive, determining, defining characteristic of what we call the literary, or more broadly, the, the artistic? And so the singularity of literature was an attempt to think through how we might find a way of talking about literature that avoided some, I'm not sure I succeeded, but trying to avoid some of the pitfalls that these earlier accounts and many other accounts of the literary had, had fallen into and, and many accounts of, of the aesthetic. And to try and find a way of talking about it that did justice to literature's constant capacity for self-renewal and, and cultural renewal. Because looking at the history of Western art, it seemed to me that although, as Constantine was saying, modernism is the place where we, we first find ourselves looking if we think about the idea of art as innovative and rupturing and all of that. But of course, if you look at the history of Western art in all its forms, you find a succession of writers, painters, sculptors, trying out new things, using the, the, the formal medium that they're that they working with to explore new, new areas of, of, of consciousness, new experiences, uh, ideas and thoughts and even feelings hitherto unexpressed. And my argument as, as part of the book is that that artists in doing this are not just bringing something new into the world, which is not difficult to do. We could all write, as Tomsky said, we were all, all saying sentences that have never been said before. But to bring something new into the world which had been excluded and upon whose exclusion the culture itself rested. So, so it seemed to me that art was a constant struggle, the best art, the most important art, constant struggle to say the unsayable, to think the unthinkable. Um, and so, I did turn my back on that project, but I'm very happy that, that other people followed it up. Um, and I don't think it goes away. I mean, it's certainly still the case that because of this peculiar um, 
non-definable status of literature. It is vulnerable, perhaps that's too negative a word, it is open to uh, determination by external forces, and it always will be. Um, but there's a sense in which, for me, the literary work, or more precisely the experience of the literary work that the, that the reader, reading in an appropriately attentive and creative way, um, th that that experience challenges the um, norm-driven constitution of, of institutions and, and, and states and, and, and academic disciplines for that matter, so that literature is, is always in excess and a, a remainder. And those of you who have read Derrida on various literary works will know that he's the main source of, of this thinking. I, I don't think I'm doing much more than developing Derrida's insights into what constitutes the literary. Um, but perhaps I can now throw the question back to Peter. Can you say more about the way you took up that issue and um, whether you think th there's a place for our work to complement one another, um, whether you think an institutional analysis can say the final word or whether you think an institutional analysis will always be subject to some some of the indeterminacies the literature brings. Um, I'll be very keen to move towards complementing with an I, but but maybe no, no, stick to try the to e. worry about the E. Yeah. Um, it's a uh, Certainly one of the ways in which my own uh, uh, work, uh, so I think, I think it's fairly clear for anybody who's uh, looked at the literature police that certainly the kinds of claims that Derek's making in that final bit about we need to ask these other questions about effectively who is setting themselves up as the guardian of the literary um, and investigate that, uh, those, those sort of uh, historical forces, I think that's absolutely clear. That's been vital to uh, an element of what I'm doing. But it was very much a book with two halves, and the second half was actually precisely the opposite point, uh, that I was interested in looking at the various, having, having discovered this unusual and unusually powerful uh, group of people who had uh, control over the space of the literary in apartheid South Africa, who, you know, if you, said, if you, sense answered, asked, if you wanted to ask yourself the question, what, what would happen if you gave literary critics real power, well, I think the, the evidence of, uh, of the uh, apartheid censorship archives tells you what would happen. Um, and it involves a lot of arbitrariness and a lot of willful power um, in all sorts of ways. So yes, that's one key dimension to it. But um, <clears throat> if I can put it this way, the other key dimension to what I'm interested in is not simply what Derek was pointing to here. What we talk about here is in the institution of literature as a noun where we want to look at certain sorts of forces, at certain sorts of bodies, a certain sort of organization, certain concentrations of power, including a university and an English department amongst all those, those, those things. Um, but equally, what we get is in any act of writing in a certain way is also the institution of literature as a verb, where, where the, the, the word institution, it's instituted in the sense of it's making a highly uh, risky, uh, unpredictable, non-guaranteed uh, bid for a new kind of authority. So if we, if we say that we, you know, one of the meanings of the word institute is to found something, 
inaugurate something and, and make a bid for a certain kind of authority. I, th I think uh, uh, you know the kinds of writing that I want to take seriously. It seems to me that they—that's another dimension to, of the institution of literature that's going on. And and what I what I thought I saw in and was hoping to try to bring out in the two halves of the literature police was on the one hand, yes, all those determining forces uh, in 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 a in a broader socio-political sort of way and institutional way um, that that determined the, the conception of the literary that ultimately for the apartheid censors meant that a book got banned or didn't get banned in that most peculiar sense of, of critical authority. And on the other hand, these various acts of institution, um, which seemed to me to be something that was disruptive in just about every case, whether it's a, a black consciousness poet like uh, James Matthews and the way that he, you know, in his very writing set himself up against the white liberal guardianship, as he took it, the white liberal guardianship of, of, of the literary culture in apartheid South Africa, you know, the, the kind of anti-poet that he projected himself. You know, fr from, from James Matthews to, you know, the kinds of things that uh, the Kutsia was doing and refusing in his work, where every work is itself another act of institution in the verbal active sense. So, so for me, I, I, I can see that in some ways, that my own sense is that uh, certainly Derrida, your work, those kind of things, that that verbal, that institution as a verb, is where we where we have a a common ground in terms of where I certainly can take a lot of things from the singularity of literature. Um, maybe the one thing that I could say where possibly we we differ a little, and and this is where I could maybe turn the question back to you. Uh, uh, we want to try to keep this going for about 45 minutes if we can, and then respond to you or you all the questions you asked where, where I wondered if we do actually differ is that it seems to me um, that what I get from a lot of the reading the singularity of literature responding to that aspect of your work is vitally important that in a sense literature is always undoing itself literature poses a question to itself all the time and therefore it poses a question to every reader everybody who wants to is and of course, we're all completely free to ignore it. But those of us who are drawn to the literary in this way, it poses a problem for all of us in that way. It seems that your, your work is, is vital for that kind of, it's always breaking its own rules and that, that process. Where, where maybe we differ a little is that for me, that's always been very important, that rule-breaking side of it. But the other thing that I'm, all, I'm constantly drawn to is the challenge that that poses to other forms of conceptualization concepts in other fields. So for instance, in, in particular, say, in the literature police, I, I saw the question that, that posed for the law itself, the law as a, a system of, of regulation and authority, and, and trying to itself police certain concepts and categories from obscenity to blasphemy, and then also, of course, perversely in the apartheid case. But also, if you look at the British Obscene Publications Act of 1859, it builds in a notion of the literary defense. So the literary defense itself enters into the discourse of the law. And a book that I'm currently working on at the moment uh, leaves the law to one side and I go towards international relations, uh, and the political sciences in various ways, and sort of co the concepts and categories that are used in those fields. So I've always been interested in uh, the specific ways, the kinds of understanding that the literary develops in, and ways of thinking that it, it, it opens up, which challenge other ways of thinking um, and other concepts. And as I've always been 
not only a challenge to itself, yeah. but a challenge to those other areas. Right. It's hard to think of that as a disagreement, since you're simply doing something that, that I haven't tried to do, but I think yeah. you're doing it valuably. But it does, it does perhaps raise the question of, I mean, it does indeed raise the question of the relation between literature and other discourses. Other, other discursive practices, uh, which is something I tried to, to understand um, in terms of the reading process, if you like, not as a psychological, phenomenological study, but just in terms of what has to go on when you read a literary work as opposed to reading uh, another kind of work, or when you read a literary work as literature as opposed to reading it in some other way. And I think we probably read in several ways at once. You know, we are absorbing knowledge from a novel, information, historical information, at the same time as reading it for, 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 for sheer entertainment, at the same time as perhaps uh, it, it's opening onto a new, a new world that we, we hadn't before been aware of. Um, and I, I reached the, the conclusion that, uh, that lit, lit, literature is a kind of mimicry Literature can absorb and, and replay any discourse. Any discourse at all can find its way into to a literary work. And you know, we only have to point to Joyce, for instance, as someone who showed, showed the, the, the literature reading world that, that actually the novel can, is a much more capacious form than anybody hitherto had, had quite realized. Um, but that once a discourse becomes part of a literary work, in a curious way, it's not itself anymore. It's as it were cited or staged or, or enacted. So I, I, I do argue in here that um, literature doesn't, for instance, moralize as literature, doesn't offer advice on how to live your lives, but it, it certainly may take an interest in the activity of moralizing. It, it can perform moralizing. It, it, we, we can be taken through what it is to be moral or immoral or develop a moral consciousness uh, without actually morality being a discourse. Legality, of course, the law constantly comes up in novels. And again, we wouldn't read a novel to, to uh, obtain some information about the law. We might, but that wouldn't be reading it as literature. But law-making, law-observing, uh, the creation and destruction of law, all of that can happen in, in, in a novel. And I entirely agree that in doing so, literature can pose very hard questions to those discourses. I, I do think, and I, I think Derrida has said this at some point, li literature's weakness is also its strength. It, it can do all of this. It can take on board any verbal discourse, verbal universe that exists and do profound and often disturbing and challenging things with it. But because it's literature, because it's a performance, it can always be totally ignored. It has no direct purchase. And perhaps it needs someone like Peter to come along and say, look, although we can't directly um, use literature in this way. Literature won't allow itself to be used in this way. 
we can take its questions and pose them directly to the law hmm. and, see what, and see what happens. Yeah, I, I, th I think that, that maybe also just sort of helps to clarify one point of, uh, uh, I'm not trying to manufacture differences here, I, I'm, but I, I'm, try I'm just trying to think through the, uh, uh, the difference. So the, definitely I can see in relation to your work the whole question of, uh, of staging and representing the law. Uh, so and, you know, if you look at uh, the, the field of literature and law studies, there's a whole uh, branch of it which frankly I find not particularly interesting. Uh, but it's a whole branch of it which says, look, let's look at lawyers in literature. Let's look at the use of legal discourse in literature. Let's look at you know, uh, parodies of, of, of a trial or whatever it might be. So there's, there's that dimension. In a sense, what you were pointing to at the end is, is where, where I would want the questions to go, is that the, the, the literary as a, way, as a way of thinking, which is a constantly, uh, it is a way of thinking that is asking us, I think, uh, you know, in, in different moments and in different ways, uh, radical questions about about thinking as such. Can I um, can I just come in because yeah. I think I, I agree that that legal study stuff is rather tedious. You know, mm. it's fairly mechanical. But but since we were talking last week about Fitzgerald's new novel, mm. you see, that's the kind of really profound thinking about what a law is, whether it be a natural law or the, a rule that a society has con concocted. Yeah. So it's not about lawyers and, and the legal profession, but sure. it's about the the lawness of law, the legality of law, yeah. what, what is law? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely, that's just what I wanted to clarify at the end, that in a sense, it is um, that certain forms of literary intervention, uh, and I think, yes, the, these kind of, we spoke about the, the antinomian dimension of, of, of the childhood yeah. of Jesus, that that, that that is posing a whole series of questions about what, what, on what, what is the basis of the law? On what do you base the law? Is it, is it a set of cultural norms that are policed by special schools for people with special needs that, that, that inculcate people into this? Or is it, as, as Simon seems to want, based on some notion of, of what is natural? What is the natural, the whole concept of natural law? Um, so it's, it's, the, it's just, I just wanted to sort of bring out that point where, um, in a sense that there's a, there's a, uh, there's a way in which when we start to think about literature as a, a constantly, uh, a form of thinking that's always breaking its own protocols, but also putting all other protocols of thinking uh, in, well, not all of them, of course, some of them, depending on what the work and the writer is doing, uh, putting them in question, uh, then we can go from literature to um, uh, other fields. And it isn't then simply a question of creating a nice, happy, interdisciplinary marriage but it is actually about the creative tensions between uh, what a discipline like literary studies can do and, uh, and bring to uh, other, other areas. And, and I, I suppose uh, we could maybe try to draw, draw things to a conclusion at this point. I mean, maybe, maybe the one way I could wrap up what it is that I've been trying to say on that, on that strand is um, one of the questions I've always had about literary studies in general uh, in certainly in the, ang uh, in the, the English-speaking world, um, is that we have uh, Mar Marge Garber uh, came up with a fantastic formulation where she had this word discipline envy. She, she borrowed, she's deliberately borrowing from Freud. Discipline envy has kind of fueled literary studies. There's a kind of a, a sense of inadequacy in our own, uh, with our own, and this is not, this is not something, you know, to be ashamed of. I mean, it, it, can, it can be a, a, a sense of, uh, fuel a sense of ambition. But there's, we've, we've constantly wanted to look elsewhere 
for our models, uh, for how to go about things. You know, whether it's anthropology, whether it's Freudian psychology, whether it's uh, um, uh, uh, the social and political sciences, for all the categories that we get from them, or or whether it's history or whatever it is. You know, there's there's some sense of fueled by discipline envy. There's something more rigorous, more substantial going on there. Uh, I, I've always really worried about that uh, uh, and felt that actually that there's there's so much go there's so much going on in our field that actually puts real questions to all those fields that we are apparently borrowing and we are we are somehow doing ourselves down by not confronting those fields with the questions that come from our own field this is this is no kind of hubris from from our, our own field or indeed any kind of isolated, I want to be, you know, uh, Helen Wendler and keep all the others away uh, and, and defend my own discipline in its purity. Not at all, but I want to bring, uh, come from a, a sense of uh, uh, um, the demands and the difficulties that, that, that uh, studying literature in this way that we do at this level at universities can pose to other fields. So, and to recognize also that that actually, although we do ourselves down by being fueled by discipline envy, in fact, philosophers like Derrida, uh, um, uh, 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 anthropologists like James Clifford, uh, you know, many people have been drawn to the literary, mm. and we need to recognize that as well. That there's, and sometimes they've been drawn to the literary in ways that is incredibly illuminating, and sometimes they're drawn to the literary in ways which we could certainly ask a lot of questions about what they're getting from it. But um, good, I know that's. We do seem to be agreeing far too much. Um, <laughs> perhaps just to, to wrap up my side of this then, to say something about the pedagogy of literary studies, which emerges from the things you're saying. Um, and we could all talk about this. You know, what, what kinds of literature teaching then would emerge from the sort of work you're doing, the sort of work I'm doing? I, I, I do worry sometimes that it sounds as though I'm advocating either something terribly like the, the, the Leavis-oriented new criticism, practical criticism that I was subjected to as a student in Peter Maritzburg 40 years ago, or that um, I'm offering a kind of subjectivized phenomenology of every, every reading is as good as every other, and you know, let's just um, compare, compare notes. Yeah. So I just wanted to stress that uh, the, this, the figure of the reader for me is a, is, a, is a cultural figure, if you like. The figure, a reader is produced by a, a culture. The reader, as, as I say in the book, is like the work, is singular. No, no reader is like any other reader because of the, the, the singularity of his or her formation. So there, there will be a different cultural, geographical, um, literary mix in any individual. But when, when I'm talking about a reader experiencing a literary text, it's not a matter of, um, as I remember Roman Williams scornfully saying when I used to go to his lectures in Cambridge, a, a naked individual encountering a naked text, which he thought that the, you know, the Leavis position was, uh, but rather a, a cultural um, meeting place that, that the reader brings, mostly unconsciously, I guess, uh, a, a whole weight of these cultural, institutional, um, linguistic and, and, and personal, familial um, ways of thinking and feeling to a text which is itself a product of a, a writer who possessed a similar but different um, accumulation of these 
factors. Uh, and so, in, in a way, I remember when Peter and I were discussing this in Paris, the, the conversation that, 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 in a way, this is a continuation of, it, it occurred to me that my image of the reader reading literary text was like two wedges meeting at a very fine point, but, but bringing to bear on that point a wider and wider um, contextual background. Uh, and so in, um, in, the, in literary discussion and literary pedagogy, it seems to me, we, we should, it's not just a matter of how, as one of my wonderful teachers in Marysville used to say, what does it make you feel? <laughs> it's not just what does it make you feel, but if you feel as you do, why do you feel as you do? What is it about your background, your culture, what are you bringing to bear, and what does it say about the, the, the work you're reading and the author and, and, and the historical context? So I think I'm not at all saying we should do less historical contextual work. I'm saying we need, we need to do better and better historical contextual work in order to bring about these events, these, these remarkable events of, of literary singularity. So shall we open up? Definitely. The floor? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Great. Thank you.